0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: It is officially, this is the first time in the history of the world where the risky thing is to do the traditional thing. That's more risky than, quote, taking risks and becoming something that is outside the dominant paradigm. It's more risky now to do the same old shit than, than to, to get into an adventure and write your own script.
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
4: Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business— all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R.com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing.
3: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away.
0: Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad?
2: Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
0: Chase, welcome to the unmistakable creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join
1: us. Thank you for having me on the show. Big fan.
0: Yeah, so it is really cool to have you here. You know, you've been long requested by our guests, so I highly doubt you need an introduction. So, for any of you who have not heard of Chase, just look up creative live and look up Chase Jarvis. But um, I want to start a little differently than we do in, than we have in the past, and I want to give you an option between two questions uh, to start with.
1: Oh. One choose your own adventure. This is good. Exactly.
0: So the first one is what social group were you part of in high school and what activities did you do and how did that impact the career that you chose? The other is what did your parents do for a living and how did that impact your choices? So either one.
1: Yeah, I'll take the first one since first is first. (laughs) Uh, Maybe we'll get to the other one later. But but um, regarding my personal sort of social group, I tried to to translate across uh, most of the groups, but I would definitely park myself in the jock group. And that wasn't accidental. Um, I grew up as an only child. And I remember being very, very creative. Uh, My parents would like, literally like all right here's you know no fancy toys here's a uh, I, i've joked before that my, my my dad gave me a block of wood and said you know go play in the woods behind the house <laughs> and you know so it, uh, imagination was encouraged and there was no kids table so i sort of had to both entertain myself and then sit at the adult table and have a conversation and if you fast forward into early school where you know creativity was fully um, uh, encouraged and you know if hey who wants to come up and draw on the board or who wants to sing or whatever where all of the kids raise their hand. You remember that early, early, early school. And then over, over time, what our schooling infrastructure does is it weeds that out of as many people as possible because that doesn't fit with the sort of the rigor of the factory mentality that our educational system is. Um, and so what I started seeing then is like, Oh, the kids who are sort of air quote creative though, that in many ways equals weird. So you know, and this may be a much more of a product of the time in which, which, you know, I, I grew up. Um, so I actually, as I identified very creative as a young kid, but when I started seeing that, I was like, Oh wait, what, what, what just sort of fits in nicely. And that was jocks. And I was, um, essentially sort of an artist trapped in a jock body. I was very, um, I was a good athlete, so I just pursued that. And, um, and, you know, I was the captain of the soccer team, captain of the football team, went to uh, college on a soccer scholarship. <clears throat> and so I think a default identifier as a, as a category would be Jock. But it's very worth noting that I was always deeply conflicted. And it was really skateboard culture, um, which is sort of a confluence of athletics, um, art, counterculture uh, that helped me reconcile who I was and sort of. Allowed me to, you know, become that more publicly. It gave me a, uh, it gave me context, and it helped me understand that you could be all three of these things. But that the idea of um, how to combat societal pressure to be or become something is a long time thread in my in my work, and is part of what I'm trying to help you know other people reconcile with their lives, living their dreams and, and career, hobby, and, and life uh, to this very day. So. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of backstory there. I don't know if that was, oh, yeah. uh, if yeah, you yeah. did your research there, but that there's a, a lot of, um, I think we could talk for a whole hour on that topic, topic, alone. Yeah. You know, I have a question
0: about how, uh, being an only child has impacted your relationships and, and kind of your entire perception of human behavior and psychology and, and how you work with a team.
1: Hmm. Okay. Fire away. What's <laughs> been the that, impact? It, that is the question in and of itself. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think the, well, for many, the concept of being an only child meant spoiled, or it means like, oh, I knew this kid one day. He was an only child. Boy, was he spoiled. Um, I I don't, I never felt like that. I felt like I was supported by my parents, but it was also, uh, I was very independent, encouraged to be very independent, had very little choice. As I mentioned earlier, like there was no kids table, so I had to sort of um, have reasonably adult conversations, probably before it was time for me to do that developmentally, um, and I was also um, not spoiled in a financial sense. We were very, very middle class. I don't think it, I can say lower, lower middle class, but certainly straight up middle class. You know, both my parents had reasonably blue collar jobs. I came from, you know, my dad was a cop, my mom was an admin at a biotech company, uh, and I, you know, I had upside down Nikes. Uh, you know, and Adidas with four stripes. Um, and, and, uh, and just was reasonably grateful for just having my needs met and didn't really know anything else. It's like when people ask, oh, what was it like being an only child? Well, I didn't, you know, I don't have any other references. Not only am I only child, but I'm, I'm the only person in my family to this day under the age of 65. Wow. So I don't, I have no cousins. I have no brothers and sisters. Um, yeah. So small family. Um, and, the way I think it impacted my um my working with teams or um or yeah just working with teams is I try and first and foremost lead by example and there's sort of an individuality um I think baked into that like you know it, hopefully if I can demonstrate that here's how I work or here's what's possible that you know, others around me will be inspired. And so I'm much more a leader than a manager. I don't think I have great manager skills and I've been fortunate to surround myself with people who are. Um, But leaning into my strengths, I think that, you know, the aspect of having uh, a boss or a peer who um, is capable and or um, wants to send the message that anything is possible, that's, that's sort of how I have maybe uh, translated that in that independent spirit or that um, only child aspect into a positive I think there's many ways that it could be a negative and I and, and I don't want to claim to have been able to usurp those in any way shape or form but I, I understand that you know being strong-minded and independent that can have a positive effect on you know demonstrating what's possible and as I move into this, you know, another phase of my career, while I'm not just sort of leading people who are are interested to follow, but leading other leaders and leading people who have huge aspirations, um, you know, that's been a, a fantastic learning experience for me. And I've been able to sort of flip the script a little bit and and learn from so many people who I get to go to work with every day that are smarter and more talented than me in all my areas of, of weakness. So, it's, yeah, I think that probably is a the best way to plug into your or back into the, uh, your question.
0: So you mentioned, uh, being a jock and yet, you know, you're kind of the antithesis of that in some ways now it's such an odd paradox to me, but I I can't imagine some incredibly valuable lessons didn't come from being an athlete that you apply to your work today. And I'm curious what those are.
1: Yeah, very much, uh, work ethic. Yeah. Um, like work when no one else is watching, it's not just about being seen working. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. about, It's about putting in the time and the cycles and the energy. Um, You know, there's a a hustle uh, and you you, you can't, there's so many things that you can't control. Uh, There's generally two things that I, and it's funny, I was just uh, on my Snapchat yesterday talking about this, um, which is, I'm just Chase Jarvis, if you care to follow me there, but it's basically there's two things that you can control. I mean, you can't control the weather, you can't control the market conditions. You can control your level of effort. And you can control who you run around with. You can control the people that you spend time with. Those are generally things that you choose. And so what sports and athletics and and in a sense, very clearly teamwork, those are, you know, those are team sports. It's not to say that I didn't, you know, skate and surf and do all those other things as well. But the core foundation of my athletics is around team. So putting in a ton of effort, outworking the people, because if, you know there are so many stories of the most talented person not winning. Mm-hmm. Oh, there! Oh, he or she had so much talent. What a shame they never. You know that's a boring uh, story. Um, the the opposite, rather the like, wow, um, this person who didn't have all that much talent worked their ass off and was able to succeed. Those are that's way more uh, a inspirational aspirational. B a, a product that I see more ubiquitously is people who had. They were good at something, and then put, put in a disproportionate amount of effort. So certainly, that's something that I came that came from um, growing up working really hard in in sports at a, at a you know at a high level. In, in soccer, I played on the Olympic development team as a young person. Had a really clear path towards professional career there if I wanted to pursue it. Um, I ended up choosing something different, but it's it's absolutely fair to say that played a huge role in you know, who I am today, despite the apparent disconnect between, you know, athletics and, and, um, and artistry. Although I'd love to explode that paradigm comparo if I could, because there there's so many of those things are are related, but.
0: Oh yeah. I mean,
1: all my creative
0: insights come from surfing. So yeah, (laughs) I can absolutely relate to that. There you go. What do you think accounts for the gap that we see, um, in levels of achievement and performance, like, you know, I've had, had so many conversations about this and it, I feel like this might end up being a subject for another book entirely. Uh, you, you, like we keep hearing messages, like the ones you get from people like Daniel Coyle, uh, who talk about the talent code or Jeff Colvin, who says talent is overrated. And yet knowing all of this, we still have this sort of drastic performance gap. You know, you and I were talking about this. It's like the 1% when it comes to the internet and creative careers, just as it is in you know regular business. Um, and I, I'm just curious, from the perspective that you have and the vantage point that you have, uh, after having talked to all the people that you have, you know, what do you think accounts for that gap?
1: Uh, well, I think there's certainly the the folks who have become most successful at whatever endeavor is it's a mix of passion and aptitude and sort of looking at those two Venn diagrams and where they overlap. Um, ultimately, the the people that that find that sweet spot of something that interests them, such that they're willing to lose themselves in it and go go really really deep, is if if you can tie that passion with something that you have aptitude. That's you know if you're five six it's not to say you can't make it in the nba there are a few people who've maybe been 5-9 <laughs> and made it but it's sort of this where, where those overlapping um, you know venn diagrams are and i think it was mark cuban who said you, you know go to where your effort is so look at the things where you're already naturally leaning into effort mm-hmm. and and that's certainly you gravitate generally speaking towards things that in which you have aptitude and so i think a talent gap is most generally um highlighted when people you know and you can be very very passionate about something that you don't have any talent for but just uh, you know setting expectations and you can do it because you love it for example um i don't have any belief that i'm going to become a professional uh singer right <laughs> but, yeah, i'm happy to sing karaoke or whatever but uh so i think ultimately it's a it's a reconciliation of that area of aptitude and passion and people either intentionally miss on that or are a little bit um maybe misaligned with their you know their true authentic self and so they don't do a good job of of casting that net but it's you know talent is real mm-hmm. like natural given abilities are it's it's real but it's just it's i just don't know as many people who have just this god given talent who have succeeded as much as the folks who have worked their asses off yeah. you know i always get asked like oh what was the defining moment in your career it's like oh wow let me think it was certainly the 10 god dang years that i worked my ass off <laughs> when no one when no one was watching that was the moment you know
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. well let's do this i would like you to walk me through the journey
0: from college to creative live um what the inflection points were, and even more importantly, what the really down moments were, where you wondered if you you really maybe should be doing this or even thinking about
1: quitting. Ooh, um, all right. So, college, there was a reconciliation that, despite my passion for soccer, my aptitude, my very clear career path, and all the opportunity that I'd just been doing it through college—you know, four hours a day, every day for five years. And I realized that that was there was so much focus, and that if you really wanted to exist and live and succeed at that at that level, that basically all other things needed to fall away or dramatically fall away in, relative to one another. And so I looked at like, okay, just pure sports focus. Is there, you know, are you willing to spend the next ten years of your life doing ninety percent that? And the answer that came back, despite all the you know, the scholarships and traveling and all the opportunity that had provided me to that point was like, you know what? I think I'm not willing to trade in 90% of my life over the next 10 years for the, just in and of itself to, to, uh, to play professional soccer. And what voice spoke to me more loudly was, um, in, uh, it was related to my course of study, which had been uh, philosophy. I, I was bound also, I was planning on going to medical school, so I did all the full you know all the pre-med and all the tests and all the interviews and stuff like that. And in the process got much more interested in philosophy because I, I realized that while my parents thought that a job in philosophy meant you could philosophize about being unemployed, <laughs> what it really was was, was it, a, it was a vehicle for critical thinking. And so I found that through reading all these philosophers and, and the act of writing, um, that I really became to know myself. And one of the things that I realized in myself was that creating is one of the things that is a uniquely, uniquely human and can be distinctly, you know, something that you can do to change your own you know, your own views, the views of others. And, and, you know, if, if at scale, perhaps, you know, a worldview. Uh, and so the idea of creating the macro sort of big picture version of, of, you know, quote unquote, being a creative, whether that was a writer or a photographer or designer, but you just had a disproportionate opportunity to impact not on your, not only your own life, but the lives of of people beyond that. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, sort of reconciling, you know being quote a creative uh with you know my sort of public persona of being an or a jock or what people who i maybe grew up alongside thought of me um i you know basically flipped the switch and started leaning really really heavily into that concept and immediately not dissimilar to where talent meets aptitude and passion um i i began to see some sort of level of success i through a very strange set of circumstances, my grandfather, uh, just a couple of days before my college graduation, uh, unexpectedly died of a massive heart attack and he had been inspirational to me in that he was in a, a, a hobbyist photographer he and and my father both and the the golden uh, or what is it the silver lining of that dark cloud was that on his death, I was given all his cameras and so I suddenly, you know, in the trauma of him passing very suddenly, uh, I had these tools that encouraged me to fulfill or follow that passion that I was reconciling in my mind about creating. And so I did what any whatever 21-year-old would do is when you graduate college, I throw all my shit in the backpack and uh, took these cameras and went and walked the earth for six months. And in the, in the, in the process... I taught myself literally how to how to be a photographer just through traveling and making mistakes and um, and following what I will refer to right now as instinct. That I and we can talk uh, at, at length about that if you want. Um, I just knew there was some sort of a, a calling there to create, and so the fact that I had this calling, the cameras, this time in my in my life where I had um, an opportunity to go travel the world for six months and you know eat cans of beans. And sleep on the floor, or sleep on the street, or sleep in a hostel somewhere. I did that. And it was really through that process that I was able to reconcile those previously unreconcilable thoughts and realize that I actually had some, uh, a reasonable amount of, of talent. So I started pursuing that. And at the end of walking the earth for six months in Europe, maybe I don't know, 20-something countries from uh, you know, London to Moscow and Scandinavia down to Greece, Uh, with my then girlfriend, now wife, Kate, we came back to the States completely broke. And so we had to get a a job. Um, I was at that time applying to medical school, still sort of trying to fulfill the dreams that other people had had for me, but all the while not really giving a shit about it and doing it sort of um, in order to appease others and that voice in the back of my head that was still telling me that I wasn't going to make it or wasn't going to amount to anything. But I put the rest of my energy into um, being a ski bum. And so my <laughs> wife and I, we, you know, again, still then girlfriend, Kate, um, we, sir, we got to get jobs. Well, let's go 10 bar and try and make some money, put, put some money aside um, in Steamboat, Colorado. Uh, and again, I was coming off having started my journey in mastering photography uh, and all I was able to, to do at that point was combine the things that were near and dear to me. I was, you know, working five hours a day, waiting tables or working in a ski shop at, you know, for, you know, 15 bucks an hour or something. And all of the rest of my energy was around creating and living this dream of sort of a a dirt bag, you know, ski snowboarder, uh, fly fisher, climber, whatever. And it was in that, that I completely lost myself. I had you know, I was having the time of my life. Um, and I, I started again, realizing that, that I had an aptitude. I sold my first photograph, licensed it rather for 500 bucks and a pair of skis because I had the right photograph of the right person with the right stuff. And, you know, what had taken me, you know, a week to make 500 bucks, um, or, or longer, you know, two weeks waiting tables, uh, or making some low hourly rage I was able to make in, in, in licensing one photograph. And I was like, wait a minute let's try and do this again. So I basically set out to repeat that same thing and subsequently did and was able to put that on repeat a couple times and realized that, wow, I can make enough to live. And it wasn't about having a lavish lifestyle. It wasn't about knowing exactly what I, what I wanted to be. I was realizing that there, was, there were people out there who were willing to pay me to travel the world and ski, snowboard, skate, surf with my friends. And I didn't care about the details. I just wanted to do that, and I leaned into that that experience. And before I knew it, I looked around and like, "Holy shit! I, I am a professional photographer. I'm making my living doing a thing that I love." And you know, you can only really connect the dots looking backwards, as mm-hmm. they say. Um, but that was the beginning of my photography career. And in order to speed up the story to get to Creative <laughs> Live, let's just say you know, over the next. Um, five to ten years um i leaned into that super hard and and was able to you know to become one of the top one half one one percent of earners in the field through writing some you know some lucky waves for example where that i was focused on that outdoor action sports photography and that was very very niche and then it went mainstream mm-hmm. when you know the concept of extreme and all that stuff went to instead of you know, working for a ski company that no one had ever heard of for five hundred dollars, you could, you know, shoot a campaign, a, a global ad campaign for uh, one of the automotive manufacturers or, you know, you know, big companies like Visa or American Express, and, and get paid, you know, l- you know, literally a hundred times that. And the so I rode that wave, and that was a mixture of, of luck and preparedness and talent and stupid, being <laughs> <speaking laughs> stupidly in the right place at the right time, and um, and. You know, then when you're on this treadmill, uh, for me it was realizing that okay, this is you know I've checked so many of the boxes that I thought I would never check, and and when you start looking at your watch when you're on a shoot that the whole world who wanted to be a photographer would kill to be on, there's a little bit of a gut check, and I realized that I wanted to, you know, there was a very defining moment, honestly, of of being caught in an avalanche. Um, I plan on telling this story more holistically over the course of the next year because it was really impactful. But the short version is I was caught in an avalanche working on a job for a very prestigious shoe company, we'll just say that, um, in the middle of the Alaskan wilderness. And I so narrowly escaped with my life that it it allowed me to take a very, very close look. And it's like, all right, you've been on a treadmill for some time. You're it's sort of like groundhog day it's just a different client and these are just the most amazing brands these are the you know the nike's the apples the the samsung's the google's the whatever the top 1% of companies you know from a brand perspective and yet there's still this sort of uh, there's a, a a a feeling that there's more and so what does the more look like then i started thinking about um, you know, i saw the internet happen i was sort of blogging and accidentally built a following of let's say a million people through the course of just sharing information was originally vilified for doing so, but looked at this as, oh my gosh, this is somewhat of a platform. And and if we turn my photo studio instead of a 15 person photo studio, what if we put these same bodies and minds together, um, around, you know, in in sort of an incubator way. So did a, a, an iPhone app and that went on to be, it was called best camera and that went on to be the app of the year in 2009 it was the first photo app that shared photos to social networks and helped kick off what we now know today as the global photo sharing craze uh, as pre Instagram pre all that stuff and uh, it was app of the year and that helped me understand that technology could scale creativity mm-hmm. um, without going down that rabbit hole i you know i walked away from never work again money and the whole venture world and you know publicly traded companies trying to buy the thing and Because I thought I was somehow selling out, and said, "You know, I want to go back and I want to, you know, do something again that has impact." But how could we do something even better that was, you know, community focused and use technology to scale creativity? And I just basically looked at the fact that there were a million people paying attention to what I was doing, and how could they wanted to learn more about creativity? So how could I connect them with my peers who were the best creative educators in the world, Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, Mm -hmm. Um, and. Voila, and Creative Live was born. Myself and my co-founder Craig started this thing from a little shoebox of a room in a gritty warehouse in South Seattle, and today it reaches you know millions of people. We have millions of students. We, we see every country in the world. You know, every month, um, we've had more than two billion minutes of video from the world's top experts consumed on the platform, and I'd like to think it's working. So. Damn, <laughs> you asked a big question yeah. uh, and, and I hope that is a oh, rough it, it raises It
0: raises more questions, as you might imagine. <laughs> uh, you, know, you said something earlier uh, in that story about instinct and this moment when you realized you had stumbled up onto something. And I've asked this question in a number of different forms. So you know, we, this can go any number of ways. But I, I think the one that I'm curious about is why you think so many people don't do anything in those moments of instinct. Like... And yet you all and the and the other question that comes from that is uh why so many people spend their lives doing things that other people think they should do?
1: Well it's to me it's a very simple answer and that's we're conditioned to do that. Yeah. We are from a very early age, and you know, I will I will first and foremost blame our educational system. The <laughs> thing it's based on the factory, literally. Yeah. The um it was largely a German invention. Um, German and or Prussian looking at, okay, um, what are very efficient means of production? It was early in the Industrial Revolution and factories were coming up and they're like, okay, well, the school system, it needs to both be a babysitter and a uh, a system that delivers education on a dosage over a period of time such that we can, you know, it sounds a little bit controversial, but indoctrinate, you know, mm-hmm. the, our, our, um, national populations. So, you know, it's it's literally built on the idea of you put some raw material in one end and then you move it through there and you give it, you know, all these individual things at the right time, and the right time is time that's good for the institution, not what's good for the individual, and then at the end of some time period, you have a thing and that thing is a human and that human has been programmed effectively to do the thing that the society wants it to do. And and I'm not trying to be conspiracy. This is literally, if you look at how the institution of education was created, it was with this in mind unabashedly. Mm -hmm. So it's no wonder that, you know, these are creative, you know, our creative gut. And, you know, to go to your question, our instincts are drilled out of us because where we wake up and someone is telling us exactly what to do. You go to school here, you take this class, you take this class. And that just goes on for, you know, 12 to 15 years. And then when you come out, Like how much free thinking are we capable of? How much dreaming are we capable of? And what does that you know that voice that we are biologically programmed to listen to? It has been you know at 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 least become questionable, and more likely has been rendered almost completely ineffective. So we're left on the backside of that with a whole litany of of shoulds. You know, you you should do this. You should do this. You should go to college. You should um, graduate. You should get good good grades. You should do something that's very practical because that's what the system was designed to get you to think like. Mm-hmm. And and then here we are. We're we're left with a you know we we throw around words like creativity and innovation and forward thinking and yet we don't have an educational system that actually is capable of producing that or usually things that are you know people or ideas that come out of those things are they come out of it in spite in spite of all of <laughs> yeah. that programming not because of it yeah you know and you know indirectly that is um very strongly correlated with why creative live exists and we wanted to build a a system that helped people follow that intuition uh-huh. and followed their dreams you know whether that be career hobby or life and um, and sort of get back in touch with that. And all the people that I know, you're, you know you may or may not disagree or agree with this, but all the people that I knew or I know today who have sort of achieved amazing things, they did so in the face of a lot of uh, of naysayers, a lot of doubt, a lot of those voices inside their head and outside their head from, you know, the way I talk about it is if you don't write your own script, someone else will surely write it for you. Um, so, you know, ultimately, that's why, You know, I've dedicated my life to help other people living their dreams. And instead of just giving them my art as a fish, um, hopefully teaching them to fish through the vehicle that is Creative Live, where we've got, you know, thousands of the world's top experts and creators teaching them that they they can do that, whether it's in business or, you know, photography, design, etc.
5: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B.
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
3: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: I don't know. If, yeah, that's oh, yeah, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I could hammer on that forever. That's also a lifelong topic for me and, <laughs> well, but I love your ask it though. It's, it's Well, it's I
0: I knew that we wouldn't, you know, uh get through this conversation without talking about education because I I've heard some of your views on education before. So I was like we have to talk about that because there are actually parents who homeschool their kids listening to the con- using the content of our show. That's amazing. Uh, so I, th- that so that begs the question then, you know, Um, you've kind of talked about what's wrong with our education system. And I happen to agree because I jokingly say I'm a failed byproduct of that system. Uh, but I I guess the the real question then is, you know, from the vantage point that you have at creative live, what is the future of our education system going to look like in order to prepare people to be like, you know, valuable members of society and also be able to do work that is meaningful and fulfilling to them. And, you know, knowing that parents who homeschool their kids are listening to this, what would you tell
1: them? I would go back to that thing that we spoke of just 10 minutes ago, which there is this sweet spot of an area of passion and an area of interest and effort Mm -hmm. and leaning into that at first as an exploratory exercise. And then as a understanding that whatever that thing is, there is a way to make a living and a life doing it is an extraordinarily powerful vehicle. It, um, and if you're making this decision for yourself, I think that's easier. If you're making this decision, you know, along with your child, um, then it's really an exercise of listening. And you're, in, you know, in the adult to, you know, in the parent capacity, you're listening to what your child and listening In listening by form of like literally listening and also by watching. Um, and as an individual, like listening to that, inner instinct that what are the things that you have aptitude in and what are the things you care about and where do you put your effort mm-hmm. to me that that um what a world it would be if people did that as a as the default rather than the society i mean i literally grew up and said oh if you're smart and hard-working and somewhat talented maybe you should be a doctor or a lawyer <laughs> like li- literally and and you know i don't disparage my my parents or my family or the you know, the culture that I was listening to or responding to at that time. But that's, that was, that was a pattern that was very real for me. And instead of doing that, what if you listen to that voice inside you that said, oh, you love piano. Well, you absolutely can be a, a professional musician or a pianist or a, this, and it doesn't have to be professional. You can do it in your spare time and it can be your side hustle and you can love it and just, you know, just write and play music. You can do that on a side. Um, And what a world that would be. And the reality is, is that there's enough diverse interests that for every person who wants to be a a concert pianist, there's someone who wants to like be an actuary or an accountant or a physician or, you know, and so I I think that there's enough, uh, (laughs) there's enough variety just in, in humans to more than provide for all of the things they need doing. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to underscore, or I don't want to, um, not underscore. I don't want to, uh, overlook the fact that we all have to do things at different times in our lives that we may not want to do that circumstances getting the way. Um, but looking at those as temporary rather than as a card that life handed you forever. Uh, to, you know, that, that's more in line with, with my belief that, that, that you can really do the things that you want to do.
0: Do you think that we'll start to see a change in the way that we're educating people uh, given that this factory model is so outdated? I mean, the Industrial Revolution ended decades ago, and yet we're still putting people through the same model.
1: Oh, it's absolutely failing.
0: Yeah. I, it's, I, it's,
1: it, it's absolutely failing. I mean, the average student debt in our country is $35,200 in 2014. I think it's hovering around 40 or, 41,000 or forty one thousand, or forty thousand five hundred now, and that's the average. So that means for everyone who owes sixty, there's somebody. Or, or more everyone than who that. owes twenty, yeah, there's someone who owes sixty grand. Yeah, and there's a lot of sort of strong economic theory that believes that a sort of a stagnating or a lukewarm economy has student debt as its basis because the students are um, hamstrung with college debt. The country, the government is disincentivized to remove it. It's the only debt that you can't mm-hmm. um, declare bankruptcy to escape. And, and the, the federal government makes a ton of money off the interest from student loans. So there's this uh, a, a loop that disincentivizes breaking that loop. Um, so the fact that the average student graduates at $40,000 and that's hampering our whole economy, that in and of itself will drive people away. Uh, The fact that if our parents had one job, we will have five, and the next generation or the generation that's growing up listening to this right now will have five at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, The schooling system that we've grown up with or that preceded us is absolutely incapable, Um, literally 100% incapable. They cannot evolve fast enough to address this need. Um, And so it's going to have to. And we're seeing this. All of the data is very clear that... You know that that going to a certain college only helps you if you go to the certain the top like one third of a percent. There's like twelve or eighteen schools mm-hmm. that if you go to these schools, you are disproportionately likely to get some job X, and everything else is like. It, it, it's not required. Now, if you're going to be a physician or an airline pilot or whatever, you need <laughs> right. to go to school to get certified, that's fine. But literally, that should be the default. If you need to get a piece of paper that says you, were, you can do this thing, then you should try and you know, go through this avenue. But for all of the things, it needs to be a real concrete, like, does this thing add value? Is it helping me? And if I come out with $40,000 in debt, what am I going to do? Because by and large, if you look at that, most people, the, the math says that most people should not go to a four-year institution to get a piece of paper that is arguably not going to help them do what they want to do in life. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, I
0: was in one of those probably top 18 or 20 schools and I can still, you know, confidently say that that doesn't necessarily translate.
1: Well, for sure, and that's one of the reasons that Creative Live we, we we are not after sort of completion. We don't certify mm-hmm. our courses because the I mean, this is true as, you know, I like to look at leading indicators. Um Leading indicators. Me personally, what are the things that I'm interested in, and then I lean into those. And the same is true for um, macroeconomic trends. And if your um, if companies like Amazon, Google, Facebook, um, the people who are leading not just the technology sector but other sectors, even the best people in the government they don't necessarily recruit out of college. They recruit based on what you've done, who you built, who, who you built things with, who you learned under, and what you're sort of. Aptitude and energy is for a particular topic. And it, it, less and less, like those companies, they don't require that you have a degree anymore for 90% of the jobs that are in their hiring plan because they want people who are passionate. So what does that look like? It looks very much like the portfolio model of creativity. Because an artist gets hired on what they've built, what they've made, who they worked with, who they worked under, what they did and what they're capable of. If you look at the thing that they did, they did just yesterday, what, what are they capable of tomorrow? You can make a reasonable guess there. And knowing that that artistic portfolio is really starting to be the dominant paradigm for all future jobs, it's interesting and it really calls into question the current economic or the current uh, educational paradigm of a four-year university.
0: Yeah, you know it's interesting. We had Salim Ismail here from uh, Singularity University, and I'd asked him about this the same question because anytime I have somebody who has sort of a, a, an unusual perspective on this, I am always curious what they think. And when I asked him about, you know, why Singularity isn't like accredited as a real university, he said because we update our curriculum in real time.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which
0: and, that blew my mind. That you know, you, so you are telling me because you are actually current with what's going on in the world, you guys can't get accredited.
1: Yep, that's one hundred percent true. And I am not. I am like completion is really a thing. And I understand that that K-12, through 12, for example, in a world where the government does have certain low-level responsibilities to check box that says you can do this, mm-hmm. to be a functioning member of society. I understand that. But for everything else, the, the concept of completing something, it's like if I asked you if you would read a 1,000-page book that 10 pages in you thought was shitty or even 50 pages <laughs> in, you said, and you said yes, I would... I would, you know, kick you in the shins i I'd say why? What what is like what is this sort of mentality of you can't quit something? Um, that is a, you know, whether that's a nationalistic or a pride or but that's just it gets very confusing very quickly cuz we're we're teaching people in our culture to value things that are not valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the difference between quitting because you're bored and quitting because you're doing something that's not helpful. You know, there's a lot of personal knowledge that goes into understanding that for your for yourself. But the point is, it's like, well, it. Uh, <laughs> I could. Uh, I, I want to just like smash shit when I when I think about people doing stuff that other people told them to do for um, for some reason. At Creative Live, we don't. You know, we don't worry about completion uh-huh. as the primary um, as the primary goal of education because there's so many things where you go and you get so much valuable so much value from 1 hour that it's like a lifetime it's the light bulb went off and you know we think of these things as reference books and you get what you you are supposed to get out of them and if you're doing something that you love you will watch it over and over again until it's mastered because you love it right. not necessarily just to move on to the next thing so there's this sort of self-reflexive self-fulfilling prophecy when you're really doing the thing that you're meant to do when you listen to that intention okay. when you listen to that intuition that is A voice inside you that we've you know as we talked about earlier systematically deprogrammed that now more than ever before we need to it is officially this is the first time in the history of the world where the risky thing is to do the traditional thing that's more risky than quote taking risks and becoming something that is outside the dominant paradigm it's more risky now to do the same old shit than then to to get into an adventure and write your own script
0: wow so
1: you can you can quote me on that oh
0: i I will (laughs) trust me that that that, that's that's going to be the teaser for the episode (laughs) one of the things i'm curious about after having you having heard you say all of that is what are some of the really interesting and amazing byproducts that you've seen in other people's lives as a byproduct of uh being involved with creative (laughs) live
1: oh man that's one of the things so um we get together as, a, as an entire company. Uh, we're about 120 people. We're split, spread across two cities, uh, Seattle and San Francisco. And we get together and have an all-hands meeting every three weeks, three to four weeks. And, you know, we get presentations from different teams and just keeping everyone on the same page. We're very much transparent. I mean, access to information is one of our core values. So um, we do this. And one of the things that we do in these meetings is, is uh, we present student stories. And, man... I mean, if you need a reason to get up and go to work in the morning, these things are just like, I mean, from just absolute joy inhalation elation and finding someone who's, you know, was told their whole life they weren't creative and now they are following their passion and they're, you know, uh, a designer who's, you know, leading a firm, a firm of 20 people and, you know, and literally transforming the way people um, look at a particular thing, use a particular product, think about the goals for the UN or something like they're just, Went from you know the the system telling them they weren't worth anything to now being a vehicle for transformation you know through millions or tens of millions or you know in some cases billions of people like that is just remarkable for people who um, who didn't think that they could add up to anything people who had um, conditions like. Um, dyslexia or ADHD growing up and they performed so poorly in school because school was designed for, you know, in that sort of factory mentality. And then when they discovered um, Creative Live and were able to lean into their passions, they're now very, very, you know, successful entrepreneurs or artists um, or building businesses in an area of life that that not just, you know, transforms millions of other people, but maybe even transforms themselves, allows them to um, you know, have financial freedom where they couldn't have it before. We just, there's just like, we read three or four of these things every meeting. And we've been having these meetings, you know, three, every, you know, two or three times a month, two times a month for six years now. And we're, we're there's no shortage of stories. In fact, there's just a shortage of time to share these things. So it's, uh, I think it, it I don't want to, it's, it's maybe dangerous to talk about it because I am, you know, a co-founder of this company, but Sharp. The, the, without sort of flag waving, it is abundantly clear that, that you know, democratization of creativity and creativity not with just with a small C like art and design, but creativity with a capital C of, which is basically making anything a business, a product, um, solving you know, the world water crisis. All these have creativity at their core and to, um, to be championing a vehicle for people to lean into that is has given me more personal, um, joy, um, pride, uh, and belief in the future than anything else I've ever done. And it, again, it's dangerous to, I don't want to wave my own flag here, but if you look at the millions of people who, um, you know, who, who take courses and classes and watch creative live, um, it, there's just a very, very clear theme that this is is resonating. And take creative live out of it. Just the fact that we can learn from the world's top experts in real time because of the internet. Because we can connect with people who've done it, not just people who went to school for it and are okay at it, but people who have gone before us. And and you know uh transformed entire industries the, that's who we can learn from now and we can do so you know on creative Live for free for example or any of the other numbers you know paradigms of education that are new and upon us YouTube um, the Khan Academy for chemistry or whatever it's just that that there is this access I, I want to absolutely call out the fact that we have to do more to create access for those who don't have access mm-hmm. but by and large you know, at least two billion, or something like that, of the population of the planet have access to this in a way that we didn't just five years ago. So the democratization is upon us. Whether that's a democratization of creativity or whether it's access, um, that is unbelievably exciting to me. I mean, you know, it's it's what gets me up uh, every day. And for that other chunk of the world that doesn't have access, uh, I'm hugely in favor and supportive of you know, groups like internet.org that, you know, Zuckerberg's group and others that are providing access to that. So, uh, it's a crazy time and it really, really is. It's a, it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal time in history and it's an interesting marker. You talked about tangents and you talked about inflection points and it's, it'd be very hard for us to not understand that we are in a huge inflection point right now.
0: Wow. Um, you talked about democratization of tools, and you and I were talking about this before we officially hit record um, about how the democratization of tools has made a lot of things possible for a lot of people. But in that process, it's also raised the bar for what we have to do with our work. And I just, I, I kind of want to hear what you have to say about that because um, I think there's a big danger in perpetuating a mimicry, academic and, uh, a mimicry epidemic and contributing to an echo chamber. I know because I see it. It's almost the entire thesis of my upcoming book.
1: Mm-hmm. For sure. So on the topic of mimicry, mimicry is one of the early phases of learning. And there is value in looking at your neighbor or if you're a baby bird and looking at your mom who stands on the edge of the nest and takes a leap and then instead of falling to the ground... You know, can flap her wings and fly. So there is a, a connection there that you're watching, um, and mimicry is an early step in that process. But the, it's a step in the process of learning to do so by your on your own. And as our culture has now a vehicle, just call it the internet, has a vehicle for displaying this and putting it, you know, out there for the world to grok. Mimicry is one piece of it, but it's a piece of you know, It's a piece on a path and it, it is dangerous and it is sort of an echo chamber for people to just look around and look at the individual tactics that others are using. I think Austin Kleon um, said it best, which is if you are stealing from one person, that's stealing. Mm-hmm. If you're stealing from everyone, that's research. And research is something that you can do more abundantly and easier now than ever before. And it's something that I absolutely encourage, but the, the real distinction that I think a lot of people miss, or when I say miss, they just haven't got there yet. And that's the sort of echo chamber you're talking about. They haven't got there yet. What they will come to realize, and what I preach from a, an artistic perspective is that the answers are not out there, wherever there is, the answers are in here and in is inside of you, in your head, in your heart. Uh, those are things that are that make you different, undeniably different, because there is, while you may have a very similar <laughs> genetic structure to all the people to your right and to your left, you truly are the only one who has lived your life. And it is the ability to put your unique imprint on something, however subtle that might be, that can resonate with, if at first a thousand, like Kevin Kelly's thousand true fans, mm-hmm. then a hundred thousand, then a million, then ten million, then a billion. Like that, that the thing that you can see and that you can experience that you can put through your lens of experience and reflect back on the world is your biggest asset. And so ultimately mimicry starts, you know, if if in a perfect world you start out imitating other one person and then you imitate many people and then you start listening to that your, your own voice, which says, Oh, what about me is unique and different. Even if that thing, it doesn't need to be, I was raised by wolves it doesn't need to be i you know i've had all this trauma it can be those things but it's like what what thing that can you do that puts your lens on what you want to do such that that will resonate in a very human way with others so there's this a really interesting tension of mimicry is an early it is a thing in the in, in, you know a step but the faster that i've seen people move away from that and listen to their own you know, you can call it gut instinct, intuition, inner voice, um, or from a creative perspective or a business building perspective, um, your personal style, like, you know, you can say that I mentioned Zuck earlier, earlier. So, you know, Facebook was really created around, you know, Zuck's ethos to move fast and break things and to add value and to connect people. And, and, you know, if he didn't put his own lens on those things, you know, Facebook would not be, Clearly, the, the juggernaut that it is today, it might be something else, or it might not have succeeded. But it's a very there is a personal lens that was applied to that, despite how big and monstrous Facebook is now. Mm-hmm. And the same can be true not just at the scale of Facebook, but on the individual scale. Like, what are you as an individual doing right now with your life? What can you do? What are your natural gifts? What is the natural lens through your own experience? Your experience matters. You don't need to get to some future day when you're good enough right now to put your lens on something and share it with the world. So I, I'm, I'm very much a, um, an optimist with respect to how the internet or how sort of a, a meritocracy will handle individuals who are both early mimickers and then move on to you know to their own vision and people who are just stuck in this cycle of ripping off the person to their right or to their left. The, there is a, a a reward system ultimately because now that information moves so freely and quickly, you really can't you can't <laughs> you can't bullshit your way to a lifetime of success. You might you know it might be a day or a week or <laughs> or a year, but you know the the world finds out. So um, I don't know. That's that's my rant on it. How does that actually? Oh, let me kind of flip flip the script yeah. on you. Yeah. You, it, as a topic of your book and you've written a lot about it and mm-hmm. you know, I know it's a part of your daily writing and, and, and of the show. Um, what, what's your take on either on just independently of what I just said or with that sort of uh, set of trousers on?
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, don't know that I, I'd never heard, you know, sort of mimicry as a phase put, put on you, but I, I mean, I, I, it's funny because I, I kind of referenced Austin Kleon as well. I said, you know, steal like an artist. Um, I, I think it's okay to learn from other people. In my mind, I think the mistake that we make is that we we confuse modeling somebody with mimicking them. And you know, I think it's it's you know, I think Tim Tim has even talked about this. Tim Ferriss, who says, you know, take the Bruce Lee model. It's like take what works for you and discard what doesn't. And the problem is that you see like this outlier crazy result. So you're like, okay, you know what? Tim Ferriss does this every single day. I'm going to behave just like Tim Ferriss and hopefully I'll become Tim Ferriss. Which, you know, I think Charlie Hone, who worked with him, he said, the only person that should be trying to become Tim is Tim. And um, so I I think that absolutely by all means there's, you know, uh, something to be said for borrowing from people. Like, you know, I know there are a lot of authors who don't read books while they're writing. Uh, a book. And I'm the polar opposite, because a lot of the books I read inspired a lot of sections, like they, they, you know, gave me insights. In fact, almost every day when I write, I start with somebody else's words first, uh, just so I have something to to think about. So I, I think that I think we have to be careful because it's very tempting to extrapolate this idea. I mean, you we know, were talking about Humans of New York and how many replicas um, there are uh, of something like Humans of New York. So to me, it, it's you know, take what works, discard what doesn't, and then don't forget to add the touches that nobody would have thought to add but you. And that comes back to this whole conversation around instinct. Like, what do you want to see exist in the world? Yeah. Uh, like, every single thing that we put out into the world is out of my morbid curiosity and my desire to see it exist.
1: Yep. And that's, I think there's something also baked in there, which all of the stuff that you are surrounded by, whether that's, um, visual, digital, physical, that was all created by someone with an idea and that someone was no smarter than you by and large. And so if you, you know, to dovetail off what you said, if you want to see something in the world, you're, you know, just as, just as likely to make it as the next guy or gal. Uh, to me, that I think that's, that's interesting, but it's, it's, um, It's very, I want to acknowledge that it's very hard in a culture where we are programmed, you know, antithetically toward that. We are programmed to be like thy neighbor Mm -hmm. and to fit in. And, you know, I do have a a certain level of optimism that, you know, this is one of the things that the internet has delivered. It is one of the things, you know, it is the positive side of the millennial generation. It is a, um, there is a desire to, say yes and instead of no Mm uh and and so i'm generally very very optimistic about the future it doesn't come you know with no cost but relative to say my parents generation uh which you know they're really fabricated into molds and you know and and it suited a particular purpose for the time it's fair to acknowledge now that we're in a different era though and that that model you know clearly is not working so what will
0: so I have two last questions for you. Um, one, you know, you mentioned earlier that you walked away from never work again in your life, money, and I'm curious, you know, one, why, what enables that, and you know, because I, I, I mean, when I listen to that, my instinct is okay, I, and you know, it's probably easy for me to say that standing where I'm at because I've never experienced it. So I'm like, I probably wouldn't do that, not that I could think of, and so I, I'm just curious um, about, you know, what informed that kind of a decision, and what misperceptions do we have about a moment like that.
1: Uh, Well, it's part of um, something I've, an ongoing reconciliation over the past several years. Um, And, you know, with respect to best camera, when, you know, you're the number one app in the app store, you've had millions of downloads and this is when you paid for apps and you, you, you know, created the first app that shared things direct to social networks and you feel like there's something there. And, that project was by and large a creative art project that, as I mentioned earlier, really was born out of my photo studio. And it was scratching your own itch, as I said. And I was scratching an itch that I had. I, I became enamored with um, the fact that we would always have these phones that were just starting to have cameras. We would always have them with us. And as a lifetime photographer, I knew that I'd miss so many pictures through not having a camera. Um, and so I sort of helped popularize the phrase, the best camera is the one that's with you. And the idea of the best camera being the one that's with you was more enamoring and more um drove more excitement to me than shooting, you know, campaigns that had millions of dollars behind that where we would travel to New Zealand with 50 people for a month to get five or six pictures, you know, for some global ad campaign and to be more enamored with this thing that I was carrying around with me on a daily basis. Um, and thought, wow, you know, what if I could just take a picture with this phone and then share it? Because it was at the same time, social networks were coming up. I was on Blogger and and Twitter had, you know, Twitter and Facebook had just sort of really come onto the scene with some sort of um, with some gusto. And wouldn't it be great if I could share that? But I was using five, six, seven, eight apps sometimes to take a picture and then share it to the Facebook app and then share it to the Twitter app. And and so out of a scratch your own itch mentality. On a side project born from my photography studio, we we created this app, and this app went on to be successful. And when you create something as an art project, when you have already struggled to reconcile your identity as an artist uh, relative to that of an athlete, or relative to that of what society wants you to be, um, you know, I had a another challenge just to tell you how deeply embedded this was for me. And I'm a very hard charging. Overtly type A person, and I'm still the soundtrack is still sort of played in my mind that oh, you did this as an art project, and if you, you know, sold this to a publicly traded company, you would be a sellout and you would undermine not just whatever the amount of money that you could give up right or get right now, but a lifetime of income as a creator or a lifetime of possibility. And of course, that's a false narrative, but you know, these false narratives that are cultural and nature are, uh, you know, they're a strong paradigm. Um, and we, you know, I'm living example of someone who's worked and struggled to, to overcome them. Um, and I think it was really based out of, um, what at the time felt like a very noble decision it was ultimately based out of sort of fear of being judged, of being the man in the arena um, and having built, you know, the first thing of its kind, and uh, and and then being judged for that thing, um, so there was a good bit of ignorance involved. There was a good bit of bit of misunderstanding and misinformation. Um, and at the core is, I thought that artists and entrepreneurs were different things at different ends of the spectrum. And what I've come to realize, and realize shortly, you know, thereafter, is that they are the same. There, And in the future, all entrepreneurs will be considered artists and are, all artists will become or be understood to be entrepreneurs. Um, and But it was a cultural reconciling that had not yet happened, I think, by and large, culturally across the board, and certainly in me, that helped me walk away from that. And what I did in process was you know, there were some other complications that, you know, I'm, I will, um, hopefully in the next 30 days, um, outline in some medium post and across a couple of my channels about some of the other decisions that went into this. There was some, I got into a legal dispute with my developer who thought that, you know, this whole idea of apps was really silly and that (laughs) they would all, they were all just flashes in the pans. And I was like, no, these are going to be multi-billion dollar businesses, you know, and, when Instagram sold for a billion, I you know my phone, my email, all those things lit up. Um, but ultimately, uh, you know, having now reconciled that, or you know, late in the game of reconciling it, what I was able to do is take all that learning and put it into the development uh, of Creative Live. And as a primary focus for me right now, looking at you know who were the people that were interested, why were they interested, how did you know how would one. Have a relationship with them. These are you know venture capitalists and large you know partners and publicly traded companies and um, you know visionary um, friends and peers and co founders. Like all of that ecosystem was was stuff that without that experience around best camera, I could not have ever sort of created Creative Live, which that definitely happened for a reason because you know a nice photo app and and I, I love Instagram. Um, and path and all those others that were born in the wake of, of Best Camera, but the fact that I'm able to be working on on Creative Live, which not just gives people a tool like an app, but helps them become something, become in touch with their. Higher, highest aspirational self, whether that's to become an artist, an entrepreneur, self employed, or just give you the creative courage to be the thing that you want to be in life by listening to other folks like Mark Cuban, Jared Leto, Ariana Huffington, Brene Brown, other people that are on our platform at Creative Live, um, Richard Branson, for example. Yeah. So it all happens for a reason. There's no question about it. And reconciling that has been a journey for me over the past five years that I've just it's been painful at times, but I, it's like many things you've heard people say before, I could not imagine life without it. So I don't know if it was a decision, if it was anything, it was out of ignorance and, and, uh, it, it has ended up serving me well, but you don't always see that from, you know, from where you're standing.
0: Yeah. Well, I I know you got to get going. So I want to give you a chance, uh, to tell us a bit about 30 days of genius and then I'll ask you my final question.
1: Oh, cool. Uh, well, yeah, I was actually just alluding to it. So 30 Days of Genius is a project. Um, I've had an ongoing, uh, an ongoing show, an internet show for about five years called Chase Jarvis Live. We started at the same time as Creative Live and now it's inside of Creative Live produced by them. And what took me about five years to create maybe 50 episodes of this, you know, it's beautifully shot and I sit down with people who are just, you know, have had unimaginable success or are are the people behind the scenes driving you know entire industries or um, just really visionary, inspiring people? I've sat down with them, you know, um, you know, folks like Mclemore or, uh, or or Tim Ferriss, for example. We've already, already mentioned here, Brené Brown, you know, a researcher and author around vulnerability. Um, what took me five years to do that now inside of Creative Live with some additional resources um, over the past. 45 days, I sat down with 30 of the most incredible people, you know, people that I just mentioned a second ago, like Richard Branson, um, Mark Cuban, Ariana Huffington, Jared Leto, um, El Luna, who's on, has been on your show before. Um, uh, Gretchen Rubin. Uh, I mean the, na- the list of, of people, uh, who I got to sit down with is really remarkable. And at the core this is a series of videos that we put together at Creative Live. It's 100% free. It's, you know, between it's usually between 45 minutes and an hour and a half with these people where I get to deconstruct the things that have helped them live their dreams their mistakes and what are their, you know, what are things that they seized. Uh, and it's available for free. Um, all you got to do is go to creativelive.com/genius and just press that blue button there and then you'll get one of those interviews in your inbox every day for 30 days. You can access them whenever you want. Uh, but it is—it's—it was such a fun project, so personally transforming, and my social feed looks—I—I'm so happy with it right now because <laughs> it's just full of the most awesome stuff from incredible people, and the—the uh, the response has been phenomenal. It's, again, it's—it's it's 100% free, and please go check it out. If you do anything as a takeaway from this this interview, go check that out, and—and um, and I think you will be inspired.
0: Well, I'm going to finish with my final question. I'm curious to see how you'll answer this after, uh, you know, oh. <laughs> I've subjected you to all my madness. <laughs> oh what geez, you, I'm, I'm ready. I'm cracking you, my knuckles here. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I will go back to the point that I made somewhere in the middle. Uh, and that is that you have lived a life that only you can live. And it's through reflecting that part of you into your work that can make you unmistakably different than someone else. The goal is not better. The world is full of better. Better is a byproduct of doing the things that you were supposed to do, of listening to yourself. And in there is sort of self. You need to look inside you and listen, and and that vehicle of of self will help you find your place in the world. That is the difference maker. That is the distinguisher. Because again, only you have lived your life. Only you can put your lens on some challenge that the world is experiencing, some way to make the world a better, more creative, a different, more special place. So I think the answer is in there. And when you're listening to that, that authentic part of you, that allows you to be your best version and your best version of you is what the world really needs because it's how you're interacting with other people in the world that will ultimately uh, uh, ultimately define you.
0: Awesome. Well, Chase, I really, really appreciate you taking the time
1: to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. This has been phenomenal. Hey, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for doing the work. I, I mean, you've, you've put in a ton of energy to this project. Uh, I, I love the work. I love who you've had on the show. I know you're continuing to build this thing you're, with your books and, and, and other stuff. So a uh, debt of gratitude back to you for being an inspiration to me and so many.